The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Happy New Year and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, senior writer at Barron's. Thanks so much for joining us for another timely conversation. My guest today is longtime investor Brian Demain. Brian is co-manager of the $18 billion Janus Henderson Fund, a mid-cap growth strategy that has delivered stellar returns over its history. Last year, in what was a very tough year for markets, the fund ranked in the seventh percentile, meaning it outperformed 93% of its category peers. Welcome, Brian. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Lauren, for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. So, you know, as you well know, uh, 2022 was a brutal year for many investors. It was the, the worst year for equity bulls since 2008. We, we're just in the first few days of January, and I'm wondering how are you feeling going into 2023? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, 2023 is, is going to certainly be, be an interesting year. Uh, let's hope it doesn't have the, uh, the return profile of 2022, but we do have a lot of, a lot of cross currents to, to think about. Um, you know, I, I think first and foremost uh, on investors' minds is the is the inflation backdrop, and, and I think our view would be that inflation is certainly going to recede from the really high levels that uh, we saw through 2022, but that it recedes to a level somewhere between call it two and four percent, not back to the zero to two percent inflation that we got used to seeing in in, in the 2010s. So. Uh, inflation won't um, be quite as center stage as it was in 2022, but it will remain uh, part of the dialogue. I think we're thinking also a lot about, you know, just just uh, what happens to companies' earnings power uh, in in 2023. You, you've sort of got this dynamic where in in 2022 inflation was really driven by by goods inflation. But in 2023, the, the piece of inflation that's now sort of most persistent is um, is services and, and wages and the like. And if you think about a company that produces goods, but does it by hiring labor, if labor is still inflating, but goods are no longer inflating, that, that creates a bit of a, of a margin squeeze dynamic. And so I think, you know, corporate margins are something that could be vulnerable um, in, in, in 2023. And, and I think on top of that, just the, the, the impact of rate increases on, on sort of aggregate demand in the economy, whether, you know, any rate sensitive sectors like housing and, and, and the like are going to be feeling that uh, commercial real estate, feeling the bite of, uh, of, of higher rates in 2023. And I think sort of, you know, behind all that are, are, are just sort of, you know, some powerful emerging themes that should sort of take us through the, the 2020s. Um, you know, deglobalization and reindustrialization is, is one that I think sort of we're going to start to see the impact of it in 2023. And these are companies onshoring production uh, building out, uh, you know, factories and plants that, as they sort of lessen their dependence on uh, on a, a globalized world, whether it be uh, uh, raw materials from Russia or or um, or production from China, companies are thinking you know differently about their supply chains, and that and that could really change 
uh, kind of which industries are driving growth in uh, in 2023 and 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 beyond. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned you know inflation rates, supply chains, and obviously those were all big themes uh, last year. But you know one of the other big themes uh, was the comeback of value investing. Now <clears throat> you know, you're a growth investor, and I would love to sort of dive into the fund that you manage with Cody Wheaton. Uh, the ticker for those of you who are interested in looking it up is JD Max. That's J D M A X. So walk us through a little bit of what you're looking for when you invest in companies. Uh, sure. So so we're looking for what I would say are four criteria in the companies that that we we want to invest in. So the first is what we call sustainable growth. So we want growth companies that are growth companies today but that will be able to sustain that growth dynamic for, for a longer period of time. Um, you know, that, that can be, it needs to be a dynamic where the demand is still going to be there a few years from now so that they can still be growing in years three to five. But we also care that the companies are growing in a prudent fashion. Um, we want the unit economics to make sense, uh, the company to be able to have, to be able to self-finance its own growth. So it doesn't have to come to the capital markets to try to, you know, continue a growth algorithm because, as we've seen, those capital markets can be fickle. Um, the second thing we 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 look to are companies with strong competitive positions, and for us, uh, competitive position can be you know we we think about it in the in the sense of a company adding value to all of its various constituencies. We want a company that the customers are delighted by, that employees like to work at, um, that society kind of views as additive as a whole. Um, you know, this is this is kind of what competitive advantage means in the in the 21st century, and, and that's that's really what we're looking for there. Um, you know, we we want the third thing we look for is a strong management team and and board of directors. Um, we want a CEO that we would want to uh, partner with if we were in the industry or work for if we were an employee in the industry, um, and one that cares about shareholder value creation. And then we want a board of directors that's also kind of focused on the right thing, a board that's kind of aligned with shareholders and, um, you know, not, not afraid to sort of ask the hard questions of management. And, and then last but not least is, is valuation. And, and Lauren, you talked about the return of value investing versus growth investing. You know, I guess the way we've always thought about it is, you know, no value investor should not want to buy a company that's growing and no growth investor should not care about valuation. For us, it's about... Uh, finding growth companies that are reasonably valued. And so valuation has always been a part of our process. Um, we were, uh, we thought sort of some of the rationalization, you know, while, while we didn't enjoy the markets being down like they were in 2022, uh, sort of a healthy respect for downside is an important part to functioning markets. If if everything just trades up all the time, a lot of capital will be misallocated. And so we're happy to see the market care about valuation again. And it, it is an important part of uh, of what we do. So let's take those forces, sustainable growth, you know, strong competitive position, uh, good management and, and a board and CEO and reasonable valuation. And then let's apply those then to the themes and the stocks that you're most excited about. Um, you know, one thing we need to mention, or you, perhaps you can uh, tell the listeners, is that you really do take a very long term perspective. And so perhaps you can just talk about uh, your investment themes that you're most excited about uh, over the next decade, and then we can perhaps sort of drill down a little bit into uh, some examples of, of the stocks that you like. And be- before we go to your answer, I just want to also remind the audience that if you have questions for Brian, please just submit them in the Q&A chat because towards the end, I'll make sure to leave some time to go through audience questions. So 
investment themes. Uh, what what are you excited about over the next decade? Sure, and and Lauren, just to just to sort of you know um, emphasize the point you made, our, our turnover in this portfolio is exceptionally low. It's 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 run about ten percent the last couple of years, fourteen percent over a longer term basis. So we really are holding stocks for for close to a decade. So. We're not the investors to sort of ask what's going to happen over the next quarter, but we, we do think a lot about about these longer term dynamics and and sort of against that backdrop, I talked through a few areas where we're excited. Um, you know, one is the growth of of electric vehicles, and um, look, wh- whatever your 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 views are on the on the you know the politics of 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 subsidies or the like. You know, electric vehicles, the 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 horses out of the barn, they are they are coming. Um, once somebody has driven an electric vehicle, uh, they are sort of very quickly sold on it and and loath to go back to an internal combustion engine. When you layer in the subsidies that have been put in put in place, um, you know the, the additional seventy five hundred dollars subsidies we're seeing for for uh, EVs. It's very clear that we're going to see robust growth for for a long time. And in twenty twenty two, so that we produced the, the world produced about eighty million cars in twenty twenty two. 10 million of which were a fully electric drivetrain. We think that number goes to 40 million by, by 2030, so a fourfold increase. Um, of that 10 million, a lot of that was in China, and those tend to be sort of more basic cars. A lot of the growth over the next uh, you know, eight to 10 years comes in Europe and the US, where it's a more fully featured car. And you know, look, the, the, there's obviously a lot of attention on the EV makers them, themselves, the Teslas and Rivians and, and the traditional auto OEMs. But that's a really hard bet to make, which, which company has the better model, what the margin structure uh, looks like and, and, and how all that plays out. Um, you know, we think a lot about you know, kind of investing in the companies that are selling the pickaxes to the miners, if you will. And uh, you know, when, we, when we look at the, the electric vehicle space, that leads us to analog semiconductor companies and, and connector businesses. And, and, and so basically when you take out an internal combustion engine and you put in a, a battery and a motor, um, you're taking out a bunch of belts and wheels and, and uh, spark plugs and the like, and you're replacing it with a battery, a motor, and a, bu- a bunch of wiring and a bunch of semiconductors. And so we've found a lot of opportunities to invest in that wiring and those semiconductors. These are analog semiconductor names like OnSemi or NXP, uh, connector companies like TE Connectivity. Um, And when we think about them through our lens, we see the sustainable growth. We think these companies are going to grow for six, 10 plus years. Uh, We see companies that are charging very little for their componentry, but they're essential components in the value of a car. So uh, really, a strong competitive position. You know, each company has its own management team, but we've uh, you know kind of vetted each team with which we've invested. And then valuation-wise, the different companies have different uh, earnings multiples, but but all of them have earnings multiples sort of between you know ten and twenty. Um, so we're not paying sort of you know very expensive growth multiples to to invest behind this space, and so it sort of checks all of our boxes. And we think, you know, kind of sets us up for compounding for, for a very long time. Um, you know, another another theme we think a lot about is is, is reindustrialization. And, you know, we, we think that uh, you know, we've had for the last 20 years, uh, the U.S. has been outsourcing, you know, production to, you know, basically to China as a function of kind of China's entry into the WTO and, and the, 
economics of globalization. Um, we think a lot has changed over the last few years, and that's you know really a function of kind of the more adversarial relationship between the U.S. and China, and then also a lot of the supply chain challenges that happened during COVID, where you know core componentry ended up gummed up because you know some random city in China went through a lockdown, and and so we think companies are reassessing their supply chains. We also think the U.S. government has decided it. It is of strategic importance for us to produce you know, certain things here in the U.S., whether that be um, uh, green energy or semiconductors and the like. And all of that is going to lead to a lot of industri- investment in industrial capacity in the U.S. And you know, the way we've found opportunities to invest there is whether it, w- it could be transportation companies, a company like J.B. Hunt, uh, or it could be diversified industrials companies like Ingersoll Rand, and, uh, and Teledyne, uh, for example. And in each of these cases, and, and the industrial economy is enormous with lots of different business models, but we can find companies that have this sustainable growth dynamic as a function of the, uh, the backdrop of reindustrialization. Uh, these companies have strong competitive positions, good management teams, and again, valuations that are, you know, probably the highest of those uh, companies I gave an example of is a low 20s earnings multiple. So, you know, very sensible uh, multiples. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, go ahead. Yes, at Barron's, we, we really love stocks and going into stocks. So maybe we can just go back to the EVs for a moment. You mentioned on semiconductor, and that's uh, for those listening, the, the ticker is ON. Perhaps you could just tell us a bit more about what, what about that stock, for example, or, or any of the others in the kind of the EV theme. Uh, drill down a little bit into one of those stocks for why you think it's a, it's a good position to, ha- to hold. Sure. Yeah, we can talk through on a little bit. So, on, um, so you know, on is a, an analog semi analog and power semiconductor company. So think of analog semiconductors as taking some sort of input from the environment and and then converting it into a digital signal to be processed and handled. So, understanding uh, you know when a brake is applied, how aggressively to you know to to when you when you press the pedal, how aggressively to brake the system, or dealing with your climate controls in the car, and then on to other you know major businesses, power semiconductors. And when you think about power semiconductors, uh, think about semiconductors that are converting power from different voltages or from AC to DC currents and the like. Um, in the case of on uh, one of the core components. Uh, in an electric vehicle is the traction inverter. And this basically takes the AC current that comes off of your wall and converts it to a DC current to go into the battery and then takes the DC current in the battery and converts it to an AC current for the motor. And this is an important uh, step in the process and energy efficiency is paramount there. Um, So historically, uh, semiconductors have been manufactured out of silicon. We all talk about silicon interchangeably with with semiconductors. There is a new substrate that is coming to market called silicon carbide. And silicon carbide, when put into an electric vehicle traction inverter, uh, can extend the range of the the EV by 5 to 10% um, and also make the charging efficiency 5 to 10% higher. That's a very big deal because these cars are sold on on their range capacity and their charging times. And so um, the companies that are able to make these traction inverter power semiconductors using silicon carbide are are very well positioned on as one of a handful of companies uh, that's involved in that. Um, We think silicon carbide becomes the standard 
partnered over the next five to 10 years, and ON should be there to take its its fair share of that. Now, you know, we're long-term investors. There's going to be bumps along the way as, uh, you know, silicon carbide is a very challenging product to produce. Uh, it's a lot more complicated than silicon, which is basically just melting sand. This is a, a more co complex material science problem. Um, so there'll be bumps along the way, but we are confident that ON will be an important player in this end market. And when you look at the math of what a power semiconductor in a traction inverter could be and put a reasonable share for on this is a multi-billion dollar market opportunity over the next five to uh to ten years so we get the kind of core growth of auto semiconductors and then we have this call option on silicon carbide that we don't think the market is really valuing and that's what gets us pretty excited about about that stock so you, in, in the reindustrialization theme, you mentioned uh, J.B. Hunt, and I guess the ticket there is J.B.H.T. Tell us uh, a bit more about that stock. Yeah, so J.B. Hunt is a, is a multimodal transportation business. So they have several businesses. The two biggest are intermodal and dedicated, and, and both are well positioned for where the world is going. So um, intermodal trucking is, you know, basically... A shipment that goes on multiple modes. So think of something that arrives on a container on a ship, is taken off the ship and put on a truck, taken to a train depot, put on the train depot to go a long distance and then put back on a different truck to finish its haul. J.B. Hunt provides the trucking elements of that multimodal shipment, and that's what's called intermodal. Um, in that space, uh, J.B. Hunt is the number one player uh, in, in the market. Um, and as we think about, you know, various products kind of moving around the, the country um, as we as we reindustrialize, whether it be components for wind turbines or components to build a new battery plant or a new semiconductor fab, um, J.B. Hunt should be well positioned for volume growth there. Um, and they, you know, because they're the largest player in that market, they have a strong competitive position, good returns on capital. Um, there are other big business is dedicated. So if you think about a consumer products company, you know, take a Pepsi or Procter & Gamble or something like that. And, you know, their core business is, you know, making the soda taste better, not the logistics of moving, uh, you know, Pepsi cans around, for example. Um, a company like J.B. Hunt can go to a consumer products company or a retailer and say, outsource your trucking operations to us. We are experts in this. We know how to manage trucks. We know how to manage truckers. Um, we know how to manage the broader logistics here. Um, and companies are, are doing that and making that move to, to J.B. Hunt, and they're the leader in that space. And um, we think that uh, you know, this is a business that can grow high single digits for, for a, long, a long period of time at good returns. Um, sorry, go ahead, Lauren. Yeah, no, that, I was going to say, you know, you have to have obviously very high conviction if you're holding stocks for, you know, 10 years, you really have to have done a sort of a deep dive onto the stock and, and really have uh, a strong belief uh, in the fundamentals of, of the stock to hold it over that kind of long period. So, you know, we've spoken about on, we've spoken a little bit about uh, JB Hunt, you know, what are, are there any other stocks in your portfolio that uh, you really are excited about? Do you think have great prospects? Um, sure. I mean, another another one that's that's probably worth talking about is is Flex. Um, so Flex was formerly known as Flextronics. It is a contract manufacturer. So uh, contract manufacturer. Think about a company. You know, um, uh, Flex doesn't make the the iPhone, uh, but for example, 
Apple designs the iPhone designed in California, but assembled in China. Um, so, you know, it, 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 the contract manufacturer is doing the, doing the assembly. Um, Flex uh, does the assembly for a number of electronic components. It does it all over the electronic devices. It does that all over the world, about 20% in China, but a fair amount in Mexico, Southeast Asia, Eastern Europe, and, and, and the like. Um, historically, Flex has uh, assembled sort of consumer electronics and uh, communications devices, think routers, servers, that sort of thing. Uh, but they've increasingly diversified their business into what they call high reliability end markets. These are industrial end markets, healthcare, um, uh, areas like that, uh, which have a much higher margin profile and a much higher return on capital profile. And so what we're seeing emerge at Flex is a more sustainable growth dynamic, margin expansion, and higher returns. On top of that, Flex has uh, made some investments in the clean energy space. Uh, they are owners of a business called Next Tracker, which helps make uh, technology that allows solar cells to kind of follow the sun through the day and lead to higher yields in, in sort of utility scale uh, solar projects, which is kind of uh, adding some fuel to the fire of, of the growth there. Um, so we think it's a better business with sustainable growth in a stronger competitive position. It has an excellent management team. The CEO, Revithi Adavithi, is, is just a terrific operator and has really improved uh, how that company is doing. And we get that whole, that whole business for about 11 times forward earnings, so, which we think is just wildly misvalued for the quality of, you know, for the improving quality of, of the, the operation there. So there's another one we're excited about that also kind of capitalizes on that uh, reindustrialization theme. And I should mention just to listeners that that, that ticker is uh, Flex, F-L-E-X, which is easy to remember since it's uh, the same name as the company. So, you know, Brian, you were kind enough to sit down with a, for a conversation with me a few weeks ago. And um, one of the things we touched on when we spoke is this idea that, you know, we all tend to think, you know, our ideas are unique, um, but markets really are efficient and our ideas are not really as unique as we, we think they are. And, you know, one of the behavioral bias biases that um, active managers uh, and any anyone really, any retail investor has to kind of overcome is overconfidence. And I'd love to know uh, how you overcome that bias so that our listeners can also be aware that they need to check that bias as they kind of think through their uh, portfolios. Yeah, I'll, I'll give a couple of points there. So on an individual security basis, one of the things we do is use a checklist. And one of my favorite books is Atul Gawande's Checklist Manifesto, which basically goes through the idea of, you know, why we so, see so few commercial plane crashes. And it's because pilots have to go through, even though they know what they're doing, they have to go through this exhaustive checklist every time before the plane takes off, which we're all very appreciative to. Well, what we think about as investors, we want to go through an exhaustive checklist before we you know, plunge into a stock. Um, and so we have a checklist that we go through for each holding. Not every holding is a yes on every check. But if it's a no, we want to understand why, understand the risks we're undertaking. And so we think that's a very prudent process to sort of make sure we don't uh, just kind of, you know, feel overconfident and like a story and, and fall in love with it. And then on a portfolio level, uh, we have uh, what we use internally, an investment policy statement. And so this kind of talks about the broader risk metrics of the portfolio, what we're looking for in securities, what we're trying to deliver for our clients. And we think that's a really 
good way to sort of reinforce what we're trying to do at a more holistic level. And so I think, you know, for the individual investors on the call, you know, I think it's reasonable to have a checklist for individual securities. I also think it's reasonable to have a broader investment policy statement saying, look, my equity exposure is going to stay between these ranges. My fixed income exposure is between these ranges. Here's what I'm trying to achieve with that so that, you know, you don't end up with thesis creep in sort of changing, you know, why you're positioned the way you are as a function of kind of near-term market dynamics. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you obviously are a professional investor, but I'm also curious about what kind of decisions you make when it comes to your, I guess, portf- uh, personal portfolio, since, you know, many of our listeners uh, are retail investors, uh, and I'm sure they're also curious about how you take your own advice and invest yourself. Yeah, I mean, so so my, my, biggest, uh, my biggest personal investment is the Janice Anderson Enterprise Fund. Uh, because I, you know, I get to manage it and control it, and I believe in what we're doing. So that's, you know, that's pretty easy. Um, I think, you know, look, I, as for individual investors, and kind of the way I, I invest my portfolio is when I go beyond um, the Janice Henderson Enterprise Fund, I invest in, you know, several Janice Henderson funds where I, you know, have belief in the managers. But I think kind of the broader advice, without kind of selling overselling Janice Henderson, is you know, large, reputable firms that are doing serious fundamental research is a good place to be. Um, I also, uh, you know, am very focused on, on, on liquid securities. Uh, you know, I, I think there's, a, there's an excitement in the market about, um, about private markets. Um, and we've seen a lot of endowments and foundations uh, and uh, institutional investors move aggressively into privates. They may play a role in the individual investor's portfolio, but understanding the risks of illiquidity and also as an individual investor saying, am I getting access to the best managers um, in that space is, is a really important question. And I, I sort of look at it and say, well, in the public markets, I can invest with some of the best active managers who are running, you know, large diversified mutual funds, but in the private markets, uh, you know, those best, those best investors are filled to capacity by the Ivy league endowments and the like. So if, if we're not able to get access to the best investors, do we really want to play there? So there's just a couple of thoughts on, yeah. on, on, on sort of personal investing. So, you know, you obviously you're an equity guy, uh, but I'm wondering what roles bonds might play in your portfolio. There's been a lot of ink spilled uh, about sort of the, the death of the 60-40 portfolio last year and some sort of hedging around that. And I'm wondering just, you know, how you feel about bonds. Yeah, I mean... It's it's kind of, I think bonds you know it depends on the individual investor's objective and what stage they are in their life cycle they obviously play a role I think our view would be um, sixty forty is is not dead but but the glory era for sixty forty is behind us and I, I you know there's no there's no getting around it I, I I think ultimately just the glory era of financial assets is past us you know we've had a forty year period of sort of declining inflation and rates. So if you go back to the, you know, transition, you know, to, to the Volcker era of double digit inflation to 2020, we had sort of a, a sign, a declining sine wave of inflation rates and therefore interest rates. And that's just a huge tailwind for both equities and fixed income. Um, I think we're now on the other side of that. Uh, th- that's, that's over. We've seen inflation rear its head again, rates are going up. And so it's going to be a choppy, decade plus uh, for both equities and fixed income. But that doesn't mean that 6040 is dead. It just means we have to have realistic expectations of what 6040 can do for us. The bonds will temper the volatility of equities. Together, a 6040 portfolio will give 
uh, decent returns, but I just think we got spoiled by the last 15 or 20 years. So um, we have just a few more minutes left, uh, but I'm going to quickly hop over to some live questions that have come in. Um, Brian, uh, Frank asks if we can repeat the symbol for this fund, and that's just easy. That's J-D-Max, J-D-M-A-X. But he also asks, is there an ETF as well? We, we do not have an ETF. Um, it's, it's, it's a little hard to do an active ETF when, if you're a small or mid-cap manager. It's a different story if you're a large-cap manager, but because the liquidity in our securities is a little thin we have to think very deliberately about it and so we haven't launched one yet it may come over time but but not at this point great gabriel asks uh, any opinion on companies in lithium and or lithium etfs yeah so we've spent some time on the on the lithium market and what i would say is is there there could be interesting investment opportunities there but it doesn't really work through our lens. You know, we talk about companies with sustainable competitive advantages. And so look, the demand for lithium is going to explode over the next 10 years. There's no getting around that. I mean, it's there, you know, it's, it's such a key component to, to electric vehicles. But when we actually go and look at the miners, you know, which miners have competitive advantages? You know, are we gonna ebb from shortage to glut to shortage to glut as, as companies add capacity? as miners add capacity, but demand grows. And so for us, in terms of looking from a long-term lens and a sustainable competitive advantage lens, we felt much more comfortable with these analog semiconductor investments. They're not quite as, as exciting maybe as the lithium companies, but we think of them as better sort of serial compounders. But the demand growth is certainly gonna be there. Great, so Hal asks, how do you manage truckers and what role do dividends play in your practice? Yeah, so on, on, on the trucking companies, you know, I think our view is they are cyclical businesses, but we are long-term investors. So we want to be aware of the cycle, try to buy the stocks at a reasonable time in the cycle, and then just think about them compounding over cycles and positioning them in the portfolio such that, look, if we hit a tough trucking cycle, it's going to hurt that stock, but the broader portfolio uh, can handle it. And then as to dividends, you know, we pay attention to them, but we are, you know, we're growth investors. We're investing for capital appreciation. We own lots of dividend payers. We don't think uh, being a dividend payer means you're not a growth company, but, but it's not sort of first and foremost, our first lens by which we, we look at uh, investments. Brian, it's been a terrific conversation. Uh, thank you so much for sort of diving into those stocks. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. But I should tell uh, listeners that if you'd like to read more about Brian and his uh, investment philosophy in the fund, you can find uh, my recent interview with uh, Brian uh, on barons.com on the website. Um, so thank you to the audience for tuning in. Thank you so much, Brian, for joining me today. Uh, we hope you can join us again tomorrow. Market Watch's managing editor Nathan Vardy and reporter Jamie Lee will discuss the golden age of biotech investing. Until next time, thank you for listening. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.